Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Well, welcome everybody. We hope you had a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. Uh, welcome back. This is the first episode of the EquipCast of 2021. Uh, we are so, uh, yeah, so excited to be back. Uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, thank you. New year, new beginning. Um, lots of lots of fun stuff for us in store over this coming year. Uh, really excited about this this first first episode. Um, my name is Jim Jansen. I am the director of pastoral services here at the Archdiocese of Omaha, and I'm joined today uh, by a new co-hostess, uh, Miss Jody Phillips. Jody, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Jim? I'm doing great. Doing really good. I'm excited to do this. We're both a little bit. I mean, if we're honest, we're a little bit giddy here. Um, <laughs> uh, both of us are are kind of fans of our guest. This is. Michael, you might be, this is weird. Okay. Other than our own archbishop, <clears throat> you may be our like most celeb uh, guest on the podcast, uh, Mr. Michael Gormley of Ooh. Catching Foxes Ooh. and of Every Knee Shall Bow podcast fame uh, is with us today. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great after an introduction like that, man. I'm fist pumping right now. That's <laughs> yeah. Right. The, I mean, the number one celebrity. It's a little bit of a podcast. It's a little bit of a low bar. And I did qualify it with like, I mean, you know, Archbishop is our Archbishop is really awesome. But uh, yeah, we're, we're super excited. I, you know, Michael, I, I feel like your your voice. I mean, you, you have a cool voice, but I mean, like you, you're offering a voice, which is just a beautiful mix, I think, of this rich, deep intellectual kind of like tradition of the church. I mean, I, I feel like you're your allusions to church documents in speech is, you know, it's like, I, I think there's a, I think some people like struggle to like catch all of that. It, you know, it's a little bit like being in a Scott Hahn class. It's like, it was like, Oh my gosh, there were like three references just thrown out there. Uh, but you deliver it with such humor and such honesty. Um, really appreciate the chance to, that you're making time and, and being with us today to have a conversation. Uh, for those who don't know you, could you just give us, tell us a little bit about your faith journey? Like when did you first meet Jesus? What's your, what's your story? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my parents were from inner city, Philadelphia, um, born and raised on the playground is where they spent most of their days. And, uh, my dad worked, uh, the day he turned 18, his mother, I think he was still a senior in high school. His mother pushed him out the front door with a new pair of khaki slacks, a hundred dollar bill. And, uh, I hope that he'll make it. Um, my dad uh, joined a oil company that then got bought by another oil company that then got bought by Texaco and moved him out to Tulsa, where eventually I would issue forth from my mother's womb and enter into this world. Uh, I um, So I was raised in Oklahoma by two hardcore inner city Philadelphia folk. I mean, Our isn't Catholic that isn't that everybody's huge. story, really? <laughs> Yeah, that is. It's the great American tale. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny, like this little parish is a Franciscan mission church, a Capuchin Franciscan mission church from Poland, because troops from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, liberated the Nazi concentration camp that the men who had become the pastors of the church were being held prisoner. Wow. So they ended up out of a debt of gratitude, debt of gratitude journeyed all the way, uh, all the way here to the States 
they build a sanctuary that was 10 feet by 20 feet wide, you know, and then the Ku Klux Klan started burning crosses in front of it in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. But then Broken Arrow grew up to be a healthy suburb of Tulsa. And uh, when I came around, you know, it was like a city, your, you know, suburban town. But uh, it was the unique thing about Broken Arrow is you got Oral Roberts University, Rama Bible College, which to a lot of Catholics, maybe you might know Oral Roberts University basketball team. But I mean, mm-hmm. these were uh, Oral Roberts was a prosperity gospel health and wealth preacher. And so as Catholics growing up in that environment, we were attacked all the time for our faith, you know, all the time. And uh, they thought that we were pagans. And I'll never forget the day mm-hmm. I was in fifth grade. And Miss Capshaw, who went to the local Main Street Baptist Church with our principal, um, she bought all the kids those, you know, those pocket New Testaments that also have Psalms and Proverbs in there, right? These mm-hmm. little back, you could slip it into a pocket, right? These little, she bought them all for every student in the class and gave them out, right? This is, this is Oklahoma, right? <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, and she does this, right? Well, I wasn't there, and she did it on Good Friday. I wasn't there. So on Easter Monday uh, of the octave, uh, I show up and she said, hey, um, you weren't here on Friday. Why weren't you? And I said, well, in my family, my dad, take uh, it's Good Friday. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Like, I didn't know what Protestants <laughs> thought at all. And I was like, I don't know if you heard of Good Friday, but in Good Friday, because of the death of Jesus Christ, we honor by, um, you know, we, we fast, we pray all day. You know, I went to this... Um, veneration of the cross my dad takes off work i don't go to school i've never gone to school on good friday and she looked at me and she had the new testament in her hand and she goes oh well i i guess you don't need this then and she just walked away and so there were so many misunderstandings misconceptions wow. um awesome. i told the story with your with the fine folks from your rural lead that uh you know and nicole newman yelled at me that i'm a mary worshiper and uh I knew enough about my Catholic faith in the fourth or fifth grade, whenever that was, to say, no, we honor her. And I remember saying not not an ounce, not uh, all the honor in the world equals a single ounce of worship like we give God. And so uh, and she she's like, no, that's not true. We went in not kidding, not exaggerating, not joking at all. The next subject was social studies. We were studying the 13 colonies of all the colonies, Maryland, as my teacher said it. And we all know why they call it that because of all the Catholics. Am I right? And everyone's like, uh huh. And I'm just like, OK. I give up. Wow. Oh, man. I used to be one of those people who would have called you a Mary worshiper, so <laughs> I can relate. Oh, were you really? I was. Really? When, when did you convert? When did you have your conversion? Uh, in 2010, right before I went to yeah. Franciscan University. So got uh, that that culture shock. mothership. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it. What a great place for baby Catholics. Okay, <laughs> let's like Just throw you <laughs> off the deep end. Well, yeah. We have a lot to tell you. <laughs> uh, that that's fantastic. Now, Michael, you're working down in a parish in yep. Houston. Um, your your title is like, like coordinator of evangelization. No, whoa, 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 whoa! I what, got no. a promotion. No, I haven't oh, updated my bios because I don't update my website. But I had a promotion. Oh, okay, I am director, director. <laughs> I prefer dictator, but they say director, director of evangelization. Now, it's it's interesting because I'm director of evangelization, which is a title. I gave myself coordinator evangelization. I changed the title. My pastor was like, why do you want to change it from coordinator of adult faith formation? Do I got a is it different responsibilities? I said, no. He said, do I have to pay you more? And I said, it'd be nice, but no. 
He said, well, why do you want it? And I was like, because my friends will think it's cooler. So the idea of evangelization is the understanding that adults need to be evangelized. Mm-hmm. But we put all of our money behind evangelizing kids, and that's the wrong way to do it. But no one in the institutional church agrees with that. Very few people in a local parish would agree with that. So, I mean, it, even if they understand it conceptually, the idea of not having a regular CCD program with a thousand catechists, uh, which is what we have at our church, no mm-hmm. one can comprehend how do I do that for adults? Like, oh, make all the adults come, keep all the kids at home, and we'll do the catechesis for the adults. But no, so I, my whole thing is constantly bringing up holding up to the church the fact that we need she has plenty of sons and daughters that need evangelization so then eventually i got all of the adult sacraments of marriage rcia adult confirmation that was placed under me annulments convalidations all that stuff and then now i'm about to take over all of elementary faith formation which was an area that i uh uh i wasn't gonna run so now i'm a dre i am okay. i am the guy i i go from being this edgy outsider to now uh i'm i'm just, I'm just a handsome dr you're super mainstream. So, I mean, dictator, <laughs> dictator is not that far off as you're. I know. That's great. Know. So, Michael, I mean, you just like just ripped it open. We're we're in it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about because you you just made passing reference to the really I mean the call of the church uh, to prioritize adult evangelization and catechesis. Did you just could you break that open and talk about that a little bit? Because I mean that is. You know, if if an alien or non-Catholic, anybody were to kind of come look at our budgets, look at our facilities, look at our personnel distribution, that supposed priority of adult evangelization catechesis would not be, um, well, it wouldn't be clear. Could Talk a little bit about that, where, where just the reality, the church is teaching, just kind of run with that for a little bit. Yeah. So part of my side hustle, I travel, give talks all over uh, U.S. and Canada, not Nebraska, um, but Almost. <laughs> so eventually, it. maybe one day, one day. Um, but I go all over and I speak in Catholic schools. I speak in colleges and uh, parishes and dioceses. And one of the, the similar things that I see the more I go into the U.S. and Canada is that the idea of adult faith formation is here's a Bible study and you're done. Or, uh, oh, you need a sacrament, here's sac prep, and you're done. And the problem with that is uh, the outcomes that we measure tend to be very, very easy to control and monitor, which is attendance at a class. I give Mm -hmm. you an eight-week class. We measure your uh, attendance at that class. At the end, we'll give you adult confirmation, or you can get married if you've done your time in pre-cana or whatever you do. And I began to realize that the metrics that we need to have is, are people disciples of Jesus Christ? Right? Are they willing to give up their jobs, to give up an hour a day in prayer? Are they willing to do the things that disciples do? Do they reprioritize their money, their relationship with their spouse, their relationship with their kids, whatever it might be? And instead, what we do, because that's a difficult metric. That means I got to know their Mm -hmm. lives. That means I got to know things going on with them and about them. And when you read Pope John Paul uh, the Great, when he wrote Catechesi Tridente, and I would encourage every, this is like hammered into every catechist major, catechism major in uh, Franciscan CT19, CT20. You had to Mm -hmm. read it over and over and over and over again. And in Catechesi Tridente, he talks about that there are people who are, it's essentially, this is the way I just say it, that they're sacramentalized without being evangelized or they're catechized without being evangelized. And if mm-hmm. catechesis is maturing someone's initial faith in the gospel, 
but they never had an initial proclamation. Where is that initial faith? So what mm -hmm. are we maturing? They never said yes, but we're acting as if they've said yes. So at best, we're making really smart baptized heathens, right? At best, right? We're getting people to agree with the church. And agreement is not the ascent of faith. Agreement is not submission. Agreement is not trustful surrender to divine providence. Agreement is none of that. I want people to give their lives, not to me, but to Jesus Christ. And mm -hmm. if I have an eight-week class and the only metric is good enough attendance with a positive enough attitude and you get a sacrament, then there's something fundamentally wrong about me. I'm not trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to work. There's something fundamentally wrong at the parish. We prioritize the wrong things. There's something fundamentally wrong about faith formation, the culture of faith formation in North America, when we think this is acceptable. And the problem is that I find over and over again is, and I'm in this boat too, other than offering a class, what the heck else am I supposed to do, right? Like I can quantify a class very easily. Okay, so we, we haven't done enough. Uh, we're going to do adult confirmation. We're going to prepare people to go to the Cardinal here in Houston to receive their confirmation. Mm -hmm. What things do they need to know in order to receive the sacrament in a worthy manner? Well, if you're talking about the average Catholic adult, that answer is the entire Bible in the catechism. <laughs> like, what do they yeah. need to know? Oh, they know nothing. They know nothing. They it is it shocks me. It shocks me how little they know. But at the same time, God can move mountains with mustard seeds, right? It doesn't take much. You you might want to tweet that. God can move mountains with mustard seeds. That is a tweetable line. That is that is that is hot, right? That's a hot take. <laughs> Um, but think about this. So then I begin to look at, I, I identify their readiness mm -hmm. and the readiness is, do they want to give their lives to Christ? Are they ready to follow him wherever it may go? Do they carve out time in their daily life for personal prayer? And it turns out, turns out for you and I, fancy people who get paid to do this stuff, all these metrics, quote unquote, they're in the, the right of Christian initiation for adults. Mm -hmm. Right, that fancy white book that the USCCB and Vatican or whoever the heck puts it, I don't even know who puts it out. The forum, the North American forum, wh whoever it is, right? This book, before every stage, before a, um, uh, a different right is received, it lists the attitudes, actions, and behaviors of people who are going to receive it. So it's like yes. they should be yeah. calling on God in prayer. They should know the the in broad strokes the outlines of the Catholic Church and her teaching. And when that when I get these adults who have been going to mass for years for adult confirmation, they don't know any of this stuff, and it yep. and it scares me. But it also keeps me employed. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's break down a little bit because I know some of our uh, some of our listeners are they're in our CIA. They're very familiar with that that process. Maybe even leading it. Others are not. There's there's a handbook. Um, yeah. on most, if you work for the church, it's hard to not have this handbook on your bookshelf with an acronym. Go for it. What's the acronym? acronym? You need, uh, well, RCIA, right? You oh, gotta yeah, have yeah, acronyms for everything. <laughs> oh, did you <laughs> right. take the FTCM for the RCIA? Then you're eligible to get the YMC and the CYM and the, and maybe you could get certified. Like, be, yeah. yeah. I was like, can't we be hip? Like evangelicals are like 328 orange <laughs> you know you're like i don't know what these things mean but at least they're like a brand <laughs> okay so this so this book basically it outlines the process of becoming catholic but not simply from a intellectual point of view 
but it talks about the dispositions of heart that are supposed to be happening through these this progressive stage, uh, through the progressive stages of, of conversion. Um, and yet it's, it's been there all along, and yet we, we've somehow only kind of zeroed in on, on the mind and, and missed the dispositions of the heart. Yeah, in community. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that they keep reminding, like the, the, the catechumen should have an experience of community. So for those of you who don't know, in broad strokes, the RCIA is broken down into four essential stages. One is the pre-catechumen or inquiry, which means period of study. And then uh, the last is purification and enlightenment that prepares you spiritually for reception of the holy sacraments of initiation on Easter Vigil. And then after Easter Vigil is a period of instruction to live the sacramental life, aka the mysteries, and that is called mystagogia. So when you start to look at it from this perspective, you realize, okay, first you take the 2000-year history of the church. For the first like 500 years, the vast majority of people that were entering the church were adults with their households. So adults needed to be formed. So we have most of the writings that we have of the early church fathers are their catechetical uh, or catechumenate uh, sermons and homilies and teachings. You know, um, there's a great uh, catechumenate school in Alexandria, another one in Antioch. Um, a lot of heresies that cropped up in the church kind of found their way into these schools, but they were all built originally around this notion of the catechumenate. And you needed to make sure people were entering the church for the right reasons. Because when the Roman emperor says, guess what, I'm Catholic. Uh, a lot of people are going to become Catholic for all the wrong reasons. And so the church is like, okay, we're going to take two or three years and we're going to, this is going to be a slow jam, right? We're going to bring you in so that you understand what you're getting yourself into. Well, and As, even before yeah. that, right, when, when it's like, you know, I'm risking my life to share yeah. fellowship and break bread with you. So I want to make sure you're a real, you're, you're the real deal. You're, you're a real brother. Yeah. And okay. So just think about that for every, almost every century, the church would evangelize an entire nation, right? And so it'd send out missionaries. And then that nation would send missionaries to the next nation, right? Like the English go to Ireland, the Irish go to Scandinavia, the Scandinavians go, and then like on and on and on until Islam cut us off from North Africa to Asia. Like the reason why Christianity is thought of as so European is primarily not just because the papacy is in Rome. It's because the Islamic invasion has cut us off from the 700s to the 1400s completely from the rest of the world. And so, but in the first hundred years of the church, it was a world religion. It was in Asia. It was going towards India. It was down in Africa. It was over into Europa, right? It was spreading. And then, okay, so then you have this development within Europe until the European powers launch their age of exploration and colonization. You then hit the nations again. But if you think about this, the unique thing about that 1,000-year period is the vast majority of work is not adult conversion. It's infant baptism. Because once the nations are converted, you're now in a sustaining maintenance mode. And the RCIA uh, or the catechumenate as a process of bringing in adult converts essentially faded away. And then it wasn't until the 40s and 50s that the Church of Missionary Territory began saying, we want to reinstate some form of the catechumenate. So then they wrote these rites, which are rituals within the mass that celebrate and, and, and kind of anoint different stages of conversion until the days of uh, reception of the, of the sacraments of initiation. Now take that. So you have the pre-catechumenate, which is a missionary evangelizing people, right? He's out there day in and day out evangelizing, evangelizing. Maybe you have a community of nuns and they build a school and people are sending their kids there and they're teaching about Christ. And then the parents come, what is this Jesus you're talking to our kids about? This, this might go on for a decade 
And then someone comes to you and says, I want to become Catholic. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, before you get into this process called the catechumenate, do you call on God in prayer? Do you know that? Right. So they might have had years with these people. Then you take that and you plop it into uh, Texas. <laughs> and, and then you're like, yeah, I know about Jesus. I know all this stuff. I They have these vague understandings, but they live in a Christian or post-Christian society. So that pre-catechumenate is here's three classes on you know, what to expect when you're expecting the sacraments of initiation, right? Like, like, uh, like Father Mike Schmitz, I, last time I talked to him about it, he did four classes of, he's like, these are the big temples from within which you got to understand. It was like, specifically who God is against other world religions, you know, to understand the Catholic view of God, to understand the incarnation, to understand faith, the, your response of faith and your daily prayer as well as our corporate prayer like if you can understand these four things then you can begin to make the journey into the heart of the church mm -hmm. but for so many of us we just get caught it's a school year uh three a few weeks before august starts maybe we'll do a inquiry and then if people actually stick around we'll do mystagogy so um yeah the rci is a fascinating thing but that's the norm around which idea of evangelization and catechizing is framed. It's it's ordered from the sacramental life of the church for the sacramental sacramental life of the church, but it's about adults. It's about adults converting. Yeah. Well, Michael, I love what you said there because there's this, you know, the call to renew the catechumenate, to renew this RCIA process, you know, as we've just kind of given given that that process an acronym. That came from mission churches, that came from mission territory. And Praise God for that, because almost imperceptibly, our neighborhoods, our parishes, our communities became mission territory again. And so now the evangelization of adults is, I mean, it's being forced upon us. And for many of us, I mean, I love what you said at the beginning there, like, well, crap, okay, so I'm supposed to be prioritizing the evangelization in catechesis of adults, and then the next question is like, well, how do I do that? If I'm not, I know how to round up kids, but how do I evangelize and catechize adults? Uh, RCIA is a huge, huge part of it, or this catechumenal process. Talk more, like what, like how do you actually do that? How do you evangelize and catechize adults? I mean, we're just not built or structured for it right now. How do you do that? And then maybe if you want to, like, like how, do, how does a pair start to kind of reorientate itself for that, that new mission field in front of us? Yeah, well, let me answer the second question first, because it flows, I think, back into the other one. Um, how does a parish begin to reprioritize? Number one is to become charismatic. You have to understand the charisma is, which is just a Greek word for proclamation or preaching, the preaching of the gospel, the invitation, what we also call in kind of fancy Catholic technical terminology, the initial proclamation of the saving love of God to people, to sinners, mm -hmm. right? So I had this priest come up to me one day, and I tell the story all the time, so I apologize if you've heard it, but this priest said to me, you know, I read Jerry Waddell's book too, and she said, have great expectations when you begin preaching the gospel, but I've seen nothing, and I've been doing it for three months. And so my first thought was, what the heck were you doing four months ago? Like, you weren't <laughs> preaching the gospel? That's weird. Um, whenever, whenever I get in front but, of a microphone- Weird, but, but common. But common, I know. But Unfortunately, like, It's yeah. so antithetical to me. I don't even know how to think that way. Like- if I'm in front of a microphone or in front of an audience at a church setting, liturgy setting, whatever, 
I am, and I am given free reign. It's appropriate for me to talk like, let's say before an adoration or whatever. I am evangelizing like crazy because I assume no one in there has a living faith in Jesus Christ. If they do, this is going to build upon it. If they don't, it might help them get it, right? And to find people that just give the homilies that are like these tired cliches, rolled out milk toast nothings, or they're these grandstanding moral declarations, and you haven't even given them the Christ around which, you know, Christian morality is built, um, it, it becomes incredibly frustrating. Um, so the first step is to get the priest to understand, and it centers on the priest. I, I, I know we want to have like our democratic approaches and all this stuff, but we have a hierarchical church. And he has the vocation to preach the gospel tied to the thing that we all come to mass for. So I would say it starts with the priest sharing the gospel over and over and over again. So back to my story mm -hmm. with this guy, he said, I haven't heard it. I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I tell, you know, I tell him like the God, uh, the judgmental God, you know, that's like of your parents, like, no, he's loving. God loves you. And he wants to be in a loving relationship with you. That's why he gave us Jesus. And I said, that's awesome. That's great. That is not nearly enough. And he's mm -hmm. like, what do you mean? I said, when do you challenge them on their sin? When do you call them to repent? And he looked at me and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, in my head, I'm thinking, what do you mean? What do I mean? <laughs> like, what so I said, well, when was the last yeah. time that you told them about the gravity of sin, mortal sin, venial sin, whatever it might be, but like what sin does to us as individuals, to the body of Christ, to the world, um, and how to get rid of it, like how to repent, how to go to confess. And he looked at me, he goes, I don't think I've ever done that. Now, this guy has been a priest for 15 yeah. years. He was a pastor of two churches. And currently, one of my really good friends, not, okay, let me rephrase it. One of my really good friends, sisters was on the staff so i have a vague understanding he's a good guy good priest he loves people but i said what i i i, I took his precious little head in my firm uh, manly iron grip and i said father if you don't call them on their sin how can they find freedom from it mm -hmm. you're giving them the conclusion you're giving them the end of the journey the mercy of Jesus Christ without giving them the steps on the journey, identification, uprooting of my sin. So I just yeah. shook his, shook him. I shook yeah. him like a, like a Polaroid picture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a mistake that we often make that we, you know, in this, in this sense that we don't want to shame people or we don't want to make people feel guilty that what we end up doing is we cheapen mercy and we cheapen grace and we give them a truncated version of the gospel, which is actually not salvific, right? It doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so also from catechesi Trinende, one of my, my favorite, um, Oh, Saint, nerd alert. St. <laughs> John Paul II, he yeah. describes the, uh, the, the kerygma as the moment when someone is overwhelmed and decides to entrust themselves to Christ. Right. Um, like, I want to be overwhelmed by, by this sal salvific nature of Christ, right? Because I'm free of my sin. So we don't want to truncate the gospel. Well, and you know, right. I love, yeah. I love that because if there's a part of the gospel that we tend to like do sweep under the rug, it, it's a, it's a, the call to conversion and, and a discussion of the, of the gravity of sin. The irony is, is that's what gives it credit because people yeah. who are living apart from Christ they know they're messed up and they're, they're trying desperately for some sort of anecdote, some sort of distraction, something to fix this. And when you call it out, when you call out the consequence of sin that they know to be true experientially 
And then you say, oh, by the way, there's a solution that gives credibility. And, and part of the re- I mean, we think that it's going to push people away. And in fact, a, a, an honest declaration of the, the mess and the pain of sin is actually what gives us credibility. Yeah. And let me speak directly to what you said. And I, I, and I want to give our priests in your diocese courage. It will push people away. But they're not the people who are looking for salvation. They're not the people who are looking for God. This is the this is the thing that we do in the Protestant world. They call it carnal Christianity. Uh, we kind of had a little bout with it where we would say, uh, uh, "What was his name?" Uh, oh gosh, I'm already blanking on the dude. He was a Pariti at the council, but his whole thing was anonymous Christians, right? Mm. These are people who can somewhat respond, but uh, he and he ended up walking away from that definition a little bit later, but he coined that phrase. It's this notion of like the carnal Christianity, I think really hits it. It's this notion of appealing to the worldly desires of people to keep the population in the church, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, The Jesuits of the 1500s were not the Jesuits of the 1600s. The Jesuits of the 1600s, there was a distinct spirituality of this carnal Christianity where, you know, you have the Jansenists, you have all this stuff happening and their, their goal was just keep the people in the church. Keep them close to God, and then maybe something will happen. But there mm-hmm. is a, a there's a lie in the core about that, mm-hmm. because number one, it says that you're the Messiah, you're the one who gets to call the shots as to who is and who isn't in the church, and you're the one that gets to truncate the gospel so as not to offend your hearers, and that's not what we're called to do. Saint Paul says we are called to preach the gospel in season and out of season, even it happens to be an election season. Okay, we still mm-hmm. have to be fierce with our gospel preaching. Now, that's number one. Number two is when we seek to create disciples, we follow the the footsteps of the master, and you have to do something, people out there. When you're creating a charismatic parish and you want to preach the gospel, you have to look at what Jesus did when he was confronted with the crowds. You have to realize that he didn't care about the crowds as crowds. That's us. That's our ego yeah. trip. That's our mentality. Like I need big numbers. I mean, come on. I was a youth minister for years and I would brag that I had 350 kids in my youth group in just high school. Can I tell mm-hmm. you this? That 350 kids rarely ever showed up. It was like the first two life nights and then they never came back. And there was more like 200 or 175. You're steady, you know, whatever number, you know, and I started <laughs> saying, let's share a different metric. What's the percentage of registered to actually attend? Right. And that's a scary metric. How many people, if you're honest, if you, if you preach the gospel fervently, and I don't mean people think preach the gospel means wag your finger at people. No, that is a false moralization of the gospel. When you preach the saving love of Jesus Christ and the demands he makes on your life, the full rigor and vigor, JP2, Catechesi Tridente, the full rigor and vigor of the <laughs> Catholic faith, when you preach that, you will find some people will leave because they're not here for Jesus. They're here yeah. for other reasons. But then you find the people who thought they were there for other reasons realize that they were really here for Jesus. And that's where you give the opportunity to change. And if you are with people and you look out at your pew on Sunday morning, you say, most of these people are skeptics, are seekers, but they're not disciples. You have to preach in a different way. So you take that mentality. How does that flow into something like the RCIA? If you have a culture of charisma, where the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is placed at the center of everything you say, as well as what we do, because it's already at the center of the sacraments, just not explicit because we never talk about it. 
Mm-hmm. But if we begin to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the saving action that justifies me and not my work, the Catholic Church condemned Pelagianism and its dirty cousin semi-Pelagianism so many times. But we keep being Pelagians. It was Christ's accomplishment yeah. that makes my work anything. So I need to stop resting on my works. And so the reason why this becomes powerful is because when it goes into things like the RCIA, you can talk about God, the creator, creation, incarnation, Israel, Moses, the law, the Davidic kingdom. You can talk about things like sexual morality, medical morality, social justice, all of these things. You can speak to these things with the cross and resurrection at the center of it all. The Paschal mystery is what makes us a people. And if I don't put that in some way and connect every teaching to the Paschal mystery of Jesus, I'm robbing them of deepening their faith and I'm just settling for agreeing with me for the time being. And we know that doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I think the thing that we should, it's important, I think, to take note of, um, we talk about the, the kerygma, it's this initial proclamation, right? But it's not the only proclamation, Right. So again, I'm going to keep calling back Catechesi Tridendic and Jim's going to keep making fun of us. Nerd alert, nerd (laughs) alert. (laughs) That through catechesis, the gospel kerygma is gradually deepened. Right. Um, So like, again, like charismatic catechesis, the new directory for catechesis keeps calling us back to charismatic catechesis in which the gospel is continuously proclaimed, continuously deepened because it is, it's the Paschal mystery in which we're, we're deepening our lives, deepening our relationship with Christ. Yeah. Well, you know, Jody, I, I appreciate that because I think there's, I think there's this, this fear. I mean, it, at one level, there's just, there's, I think, a, just huge gaps in awareness in the ministers of the church, and I mean that in both senses, our lay and and ordained ministers, a, a gap in awareness of what the gospel is and how to proclaim it. But even amongst those who who are developing a conviction that, like, okay, I've got to preach the gospel, I think there's this fear that, well, I mean, no, this is. I'm pretty sure these are the, these are disciples. These folks love Jesus. And there's a temptation to want to presume the gospel and skip it. And again, I love what both of you are saying. It's like, no, 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 preach it again. But it doesn't matter if you're talking about medical ethics or morality or the finer points of Deuteronomy, put the cross, put the Paschal ministry, put the kerygma right in the center. And if Mother Teresa is sitting I mean, that'd be a little awkward now, but what, you know, it's like, whatever it, the most saintly person, devoted disciple is sitting there and you're preaching the good news. It's good for them too. Like they, I mean, it's, it is the, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like the people who are disciples of Jesus are going to be turned off. It's like, oh, here he is talking about Jesus and freedom and mercy and grace and love again, uh, you know, calling me to repent for my sins, man, who fought, you know, I mean, this the 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 part is like the non-disciples need it and the disciples love it and benefit all the more from the re-articulation and deepening of that core message. Yeah, and going right off, if you understand catechesis in Catechesis Tridenda, he's he starts off by saying the from the earliest age of the church, the term discipleship and all that kind of it embodied became you know basically the word catechesis became that that phrase or word that describes that whole process if you think of it that way then when does someone become a disciple after they drop their nets to follow the lord 
So you preach and preach and you do apologetics and you do all those things that we call pre-evangelization. Mm -hmm. You address their concerns. You treat them like a person, not a project. You love them as an individual. You are loving them, right? So, okay, okay. let, let me just finish this thought and then my ADD, ADHD mind is like, oh, go over here. Um, you love them in the middle of it. They give you an opportunity to speak the gospel into their lives. They respond by faithful submission. Then you lead them to the sacraments. That's the movement. We have been cut to the heart. Brothers, what must we do to be saved? Go, uh, have faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And about and on that day, about 3,000 were added to their number. This is all Acts chapter 2. The kerygma is preached. Yeah. The response, the conviction of faith is made. And faith leads us to baptism. Right? Okay. You can't, I mean... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't separate these things, but we do. Well, so let so let me, Mike. Let's get let's get like kind of hard. I'm here. yelling! I'm yelling all the time. <laughs> let's get let, let's get to the like the heart because I feel I feel like there are a number of yep. folks. Like what you just said, there was I think is key, and I don't want to get lost because I think it's revolutionary that it is a the initial proclamation of the core message, and that adherence, that conversion, that then leads to the sacraments. Can you talk to, I want you to speak to, I want to say the faithful, um, our faithful clergy, uh, faithful catechists who, who love the liturgy. They love solid catechesis. They, they love that. And there's, they've seen so many kind of like false start renewals in the church, <laughs> you know, where, where it was like, it was goofy liturgy. Goofy catechesis, goofy is a, you know, kind of a technical term here, but, (laughs) you know, they saw all that and they're like, okay, I'm going to just say mass beautiful and I'm going to teach the substance of the faith and I'm going to, and I'm going to do adoration and exposition and I'm going to, and I'm going to do Marian consecrations and we're going to talk about the rosary and they, they like, they bring back everything but the kerygma and the initial proclamation. Can you talk to them? Because these are folks that are like good hearts. They desire good. They want people to encounter the Lord. But the kerygma isn't really on their radar screen. It, maybe it feels a little Protestant. Can you, can you speak to them? Because I think there's a, I mean, that was, that was a little, that was my story. I mean, it's not my, well, yeah. it is my podcast, yeah. no, but it's no, not, no, I'm not going to tell my story, but that was my story as a missionary. I love yeah. catechesis. Um, it was just the proclamation thing made me feel uncomfortable. So speak yeah. to them if you would. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny that you say that. Um, I, I would say the vast majority of Catholic priests out there don't necessarily fall in what you just said. Um, the majority right. of what I've seen. They and they have, feel that they're a minority. They're like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm the only one trying to do this right. I'm trying to make right. it beautiful. Yeah. And I would say for me, I, uh, okay, so this is a lens that I, I like to present this on. There's two kind of things that I like to use. One is the five models of the church by Cardinal Avery Dulles. It, he talks about these different ways of thinking about or types of the church. One is the church's herald, the evangelist. The other one, church's servant, those who go out to the poor and the marginalized. The other one is the church's sacramental, the sacramental liturgical life. Uh, the church is hierarchical. You look at the Pope, the bishops, right? You see the hierarchy and the laity have their roles and offices and all that stuff. And then whatever the other one is that I always forget. So uh, <laughs> you have all these, you have these models. And he said at the end of his book, that oftentimes when you adopt, when one of these models becomes essentially a dominant framework, not mm-hmm. only do you have a corresponding model. So if you love the sacramental church, you pro- oh, is the body of Christ. If you love the sacramental church, you also probably love the hierarchical church. 
if you love mm-hmm. the heraldic church, you also probably get along well with the servant church because it's so outward oriented, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, ad extra oriented, right? Going outside the church. And then the, the other types are ad intra, into the internal life of the church. And he said, and then you have your antagonisms where the ad extra and the ad intra people kind of don't like each other. And the people who have charisms of evangelization can tend to be those who are very distant from the sacramental or hierarchical life of the church, uh, especially laity who feel like they're making so many converts and they see priests and deacons and bishops do nothing evangelical and it bothers them. Um, And so what I want to get people to do is to realize that at the end of his book, uh, the second edition, he rewrote. And ending saying, actually, he said, I I don't believe there's any one model that kind of brings all these together. He actually said, yes, actually, there is. It's called the communion of disciples. And if you have a legitimate communion, as understood by JP2, uh, what communion is? An interpersonal sharing of one's own life to one another that is characterized by love and not use. What you will end up having is uh, you will end up seeing how the sacramental life, and this is in all the teachings of the church, Mm -hmm. the sacramental life leads to evangelization because I am formed by my community. And it returns to the community through, you know, I might be going out in service. I might be going out evangelizing and returns to the sacramental life of the church. Now, to the priest who is trying to be faithful to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, to the traditional practices and devotions, I would say to you this. Oh, priest, don't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Keep going, right? Don't hesitate at all. Acts 2.42 is the second thing I like to use, and this is where I'm going to yell at you tratty priests who think, who rest secure in your traditionalism, and you laity who rest secure in your private devotions and your moral upworthiness, and you don't evangelize or you don't serve. And this also is going to call to task all those flaky priests who think that the liturgy is the handmaiden of the whim of the people, right, which the catechism explicitly condemns. Uh, (laughs) Here's the deal. Acts 2.42 gives us no excuse, and it lays out clearly the call. Uh, it, it tells us that the early church grew because everyone was devoted to these mm-hmm. four things, to the apostles' teaching, teaching the faith accurately, good catechesis, all that stuff, to the apostolic teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Now, all of these are summed up in the Mass, that's true, but they are also distinct things. To preach the gospel, the full gospel truth, the saving truth that saves people's lives, the the catechesis that enriches them, all of that stuff. But also the fellowship. Why is it that the people on the right, conservative or traditional Catholics, tend to favor apostolic teaching and good liturgies, the breaking of the bread, and people on the left tend to focus on personal spirituality and the prayers, or uh, being or the community stuff, being an inclusive community. Why can't we have all four? Because if you have all four, just because you're really good at liturgy doesn't mean you're allowed to be terrible at community. Just because you're good at community doesn't mean you get to hide the church's teaching. And just because you do that doesn't mean you don't have you you can foster only one type of, of authentic Catholic spirituality over and against others, right? A truly Catholic church is one that fiercely preaches the gospel and the implications of the gospel in people's moral lives, right? I talk about morality as the way we live the gospel. It's not something other than the gospel. But then when you have bad liturgy, you're engaging in bad catechesis. Like, for instance, here's something stupid Mm -hmm. that I realized over time. You know when priests kiss the altar, they're supposed to put both their hands on the altar? Did you know that? I did not know that. 
I think as yeah, a yeah, balance yeah. thing, is this a <laughs> yeah, don't fall over, father, <laughs> don't fall over. But I don't know what I don't I have no idea what the reason is. But um, so this priest friend of mine, he's godfather of my fourth kid, he's an amazing man. He sends it to this guy in our diocese who's like a stickler for the Roman Missal, and he says, Critique my live stream. And the guy's like, Oh, within the first two minutes, you have like five mistakes. He's like, What is it? So he tells him, you know, when you kiss the altar, put both hands down. And so he tells him, like, he, I, I don't know if he told him why. He didn't tell me why. And then I saw my buddy, who I never get to see at Mass because he's on the other side of Houston, celebrating my church when our priest got COVID. And you could have heard a pin drop moment he walked in, moment he left, because the reverential devotion to the Eucharist shook people. I mean, people were in tears mm -hmm. as he wiped up the remnants of the Eucharist that fell during Holy Communion with someone fumbling over their mask. They dropped the host. I have seen this happen 11 times since masks have been involved in, at the liturgy. And what mm -hmm. happens is the Eucharistic minister just quickly picks it up and consumes it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. No purificator on the floor, no getting crumbs, no washing with the holy water, none of this stuff. He gets on his hands and knees and he purifies that area. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it sounds so silly, but the things that are essential to the church, there are also things that aren't essential, but they support the essential things. They grew up in the Middle Ages and they grew up in the 1800s or whatever to keep the main thing, the main thing. And these things surround it. So putting both hands on the altar is so stupid to be a stickler about until you see them do the rush, walk up, kiss, whatever. And then you see someone who slows down enough to put both hands, kiss. He's got nothing in his hand. He's not carrying a worship aid. He's focused entirely on his mission as a priest. So this is what I tell people, right? If you love the liturgy, especially the traditional liturgy of the church, right? Whatever it's the extraordinary form, you know, Latin form, the ordinary of the chair of St. Peter, whatever it might be. If you come from a traditional background that does not give you permission, that does not give you permission to say, well, I'm 100% here. I get to get by with 5% here. And I got into this mm -hmm. screaming argument with a priest who said, I'm sick and tired of hearing about community, community, community. It's all about community. Put our church in the round. It's all community. And then, so me and him shared that thing. Like, yeah, I agree. It's stupid. But like having churches in the round and ignoring the liturgy and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, the early church devoted themselves to community. Do mm -hmm. you? Oh, no, you're a Lone Ranger priest. None of your staff gets along with you, right? Because you're a stickler for this one thing, but you're cold. I have been in churches that preach the gospel effectively, but they're the coldest people on the face of the earth. And then you go to these liberal churches that don't even know what teaches, and they're warm and welcoming. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, and then they say this. They say this. This is what kills me, right? Well, we're inclusive like Jesus, who welcomed the sinner, tax collector, and prostitute. And I said, yeah, but Jesus also said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And when they encountered Christ, they didn't leave tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. They changed their life yeah. because he told them to. Right. The woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, she changed her life. This is the this is what it means to be a community of disciples. We need excellent liturgy. We need holy and reverential uh, devotions. That's why the church gives us things like the rosaries, because they are profitable down through history. But at the same time, we can't just put ourselves into our own. It's, it's crazy when you have people who only do liturgy and they don't do the kerygma. They don't evangelize because you're making the church in your image and likeness, which is what you say the other churches are doing. Mm -hmm. The liberal, oh, you just Ooh, make the liturgy wow. whatever you want. Wow, well, you make your ecclesial life whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just to circle it back to you, like, the, <laughs> we got to do something. 
Yeah. <laughs> I apologize. No, 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 no. Good job. You're fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I think just circle it back. You know, you, you early on, you said for the, for those priests, right. This is not a condemnation of the priests who are, are sticklers to the liturgy, to doing the liturgy. Right. well, Because the way of beauty is an entrance to the gospel, right? The way of beauty, when I, you, you talked about that priest who walked in and everyone was attentive because of his reverence. Yes. All right, everybody. I hope you are enjoying our conversation with Michael Gormley. We're going to pause for a little bit. We had so much fun uh, talking with Michael. We actually filled up two episodes worth. So if uh, you would like to hear more of Michael's tirades uh, and uh, call for unity and the the practical need to bring uh, all the aspects of uh, the mission of the church together. Uh, stay tuned for next time. We're going to pick up the second half of the conversation next week. Uh, stay tuned for that. Michael's going to talk a little bit about leading with beauty and how we evangelize the modern world. So thank you for being with us and come back next week to hear the second part of this conversation. <laughs>